Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Josh Noble and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. Syria's economy has been devastated by its ongoing civil war. Over 80% of Syrians now live below the poverty line. However, among the inner circles of the elite, there are a few individuals making fortunes from the country's war-torn state. Chloe Cornish, the FT's Middle East correspondent, has been investigating, and she's on the line with me now to discuss this. Chloe, can you paint us a picture of just what's happened to Syria and its economy since the war started? We think around half a million Syrians have been killed in this eight-year civil war. It's one of the bloodiest conflicts of this century. As you might expect, its economy has also suffered huge damage. Young men are either fighting, fleeing, or trying to stay and study long enough to avoid either of those things. That's taken a massive chunk out of the labour force. So countless factories and shops have been destroyed. Trade has been disrupted by international sanctions. And the value of Syria's currency has absolutely plummeted from 50 Syrian pounds to the dollar when the crisis started to around 600 now. Corruption's a huge problem as well. State officials have such meagre salaries, they're increasingly turning to graft. Business people say that bribes are hitting their profits even further. You visited the capital, Damascus, back in January. How are people living there day to day? Damascus is really quite strange. You see a huge distinction between rich and poor. The rich are able to go and enjoy smoking shisha in restaurants, drinking wine and driving four by four cars, that kind of thing. But most people were just struggling to get cooking gas because there was a shortage. And even buying meat more than once a month was difficult for a lot of people that I was speaking to there. I was just really shocked by how much people said they were struggling, despite the fact that there's much less fighting now in Syria and Damascus is no longer being showered by mortars in the way that it was. So you have people at the high end living a wealthy lifestyle and then people in abject poverty. What about the country's middle class? So they were sort of the most mobile. They were the most able to flee. So they disappeared in that way. But also just as the economic situation has worsened, people have been dragged down from the middle class. So the country is sort of hollowed out in that way. You've got really rich people who've profited from the war or maybe managed to keep hold of their money in some way. And then people who've become really poor throughout the eight years of war. So turning to some of the sort of individual characters in this story, tell us about Rami Makhlouf. How did you first come across him and how has he made his money? So in a way, I first came across Rami Makhlouf at the Syrian-Lebanese border because he owns the duty-free shops there, where a lot of the signs are in Russian, interestingly enough. For anyone trying to understand how Syria is ruled, Rami Makhlouf is a crucial figure. His mother was President Bashar al-Assad's aunt. So both families, the Makhloufs and the Assads, are from the minority Alawi sect. So I'm going back a bit here, but the Makhlouf family is actually kind of an older and sort of more famous family than the Assads, or they were before Hafez al-Assad, Bashar's father, took power. He did that through the ranks of the army, and then through a series of coups, he became the leader of Syria with the Ba'ath party. And he's actually seen as having married up by having married a Makhlouf. So that is where Rami Makhlouf comes from. He's from this elite Alawi group. He was Bashar al-Assad's childhood playmate. And when Bashar took power in 2000, Bashar was never supposed to be president, by the way. His brother was the one who'd been kind of anointed, his older brother, but he died in a car crash. And so Bashar, who's actually an ophthalmologist by training, became Syria's accidental president. 
And he wanted to, or he said he wanted to open up the economy in a sort of neoliberal way. But what we saw really happening was in the early 2000s and onwards was the economic power in Syria being concentrated in the hands of people who Bashar favoured and Rami Makhlouf was one of those people. He mostly benefited through his ownership of the mobile telephone company Syriatel, which is one of only two, is partially state-owned. So that was his cash cow, really. Then he also had things like the duty-free shops and just a whole raft of other business interests through various holding companies. The sort of grand total of Rami Makhlouf's business empire was thought to equate to about more than half of the overall Syrian economy. So that's just how significant a figure he is. So we're talking about a close relationship that dates back to childhood. But more recently, things seem to have turned sour. Can you tell us a bit more about that and what's going on? So in terms of Rami's fall from grace or apparent fall from grace, and I must stress that all of this is incredibly murky in palace politics, and probably there's only a handful of people who really know every twist and turn of this story. So my understanding at this point is that every business figure in Syria is sort of expected to pay a portion of their profits to the regime and the war effort. I'm not really sure what the proportion is. I've never heard anyone give a proper figure about that. But it seems like Rami was not paying as much as he was expected to or in some way not contributing sufficiently. And that may have been one of the key reasons that he's fallen out of favour. So Rami has this charity foundation called Al-Bustan. It's been accused of funding a pro-regime militia. Sources say that this foundation was very significant in the coastal region of Latakia. So that's where the biggest populations of Alawis live. And Rami was using Abu San apparently to cement his popularity there. Now, could that have seemed like a challenge to Bashar? I mean, I don't know. But Bashar is certainly using this period of the war where he's taken control of what we call useful Syria sometimes, a very big chunk of Syria, including major industrial cities, Homs and Aleppo. He's using this time to try and consolidate his power. So he's reorganizing some of these pro-regime militias. And, you know, maybe he is doing the same thing in the economic field. Maybe he wants to lessen Rami's control there and maybe open it up a bit for other figures who've proved useful to him over the course of the war. So it seems like Rami's lost control of Bustan and at least some of Syriatel that I mentioned earlier, that mobile network that really is his cash cow. And, you know, there are lots of different reports, again, hard to verify, but it may be that he's lost other bits of businesses as well. So while the war has obviously destroyed livelihoods for the vast majority of people, and it's complicated the lives of some of the wealthy elite in Syria, for others, it's opened up investment opportunities. Another character in this tale is Samer Foz. Tell us about him and how he's risen to the top in Syria. So Samad Fawz is a great example of how traders have become completely integral to the Syrian economy. So traders and intermediaries. And in the Syrian civil war context, suddenly you had a lot of internal borders because you had borders between regime-held areas and opposition-held areas. And these have all shifted a lot during the course of the war. Sometimes some areas were held by terrorist groups like ISIS, sometimes the Free Syrian Army. Lots of different players have been involved. And what has been needed in order to keep trade going is intermediaries who can deal with all the parties who are willing to get their hands dirty in effect and deal with very unsavory people. So Samar Force started out in 2011 really as an unknown. I mean, his family were in business before 2011. They had a trading company. They mostly dealt in foodstuffs. But through a very astute knack for deal making, as it appears, with different sides, 
Samarfors was able to become very important to keeping goods flowing across borders. And he became important to the regime, it seems. Either he used his profits from all this trading to start to invest in new businesses, or, as some people would argue, he was a front for the Assads or for Bashar al-Assad, and he used their money to invest in new businesses. Samarfors has always denied that. But he has amassed this quite incredible business empire throughout Syria, also on the back of business people who fell out of favour with the regime. So... In one case, someone who had a cable factory fell out of favour with the regime or Samarfors was able to come in and buy that. So he's turned this into just a massive empire, really, including you know, sugar, cables, steel. He's got stakes in banks. It's really quite a feat to have come from being a single company trader to suddenly having this evident wealth. He's been linked to a private plane that used to jet around Europe. Panama Papers linked him to that plane. And the really amazing thing about Samar Fors was he wasn't sanctioned. So while a lot of the other business people seen as close to the regime were sanctioned by either the European Union or the United States for providing financial support to the regime in some way or another, Samar Fors wasn't because he was such an unknown. And that allowed him to keep traveling through Europe. And he continued to be not just an intermediary, I think, within Syria, but also an intermediary with Turkey, where he has his passport and very strong links, Dubai, where you know his family, I believe, are still living. So he was able to travel. He was kind of like an emissary in a sense. And I think people saw him abroad as quite a useful way to understand what was going on in Damascus. However, this didn't last. Samarfors did eventually get sanctioned because he went into a real estate deal. It started to establish a construction company. But then he won this contract for part of a luxury housing development to be built on top of lands that had been expropriated by the regime. So it was like a residential area where people had been living informally, often largely without paperwork, that the regime had taken and decided to use for this public-private partnership building project. And the European Union wanted to send a message about this kind of expropriation of land and property. So they created a sanctions package targeting investors in this project, which is called Morota City. And Samarfos was one of the people who got hit by this round of sanctions earlier this year. So he had to adjust his sights a bit. He can't travel around Europe freely as he was able to in the past. But I don't think that this will have really done a huge amount to dent his wealth. Now, you also came across the Katerji brothers in northern Syria. What can you tell us about them? The Katerjis originally come from Raqqa, which is the city that became the capital of ISIS's caliphate. But they're sort of based out of Aleppo. Sources who know of and know about the Katerji brothers say they're fairly tough cookies, right? They're very much willing to get involved in trades that other people would probably avoid. So they've been accused of having traded with ISIS when ISIS was holding parts of northeast Syria, including oil fields there. One of the things about the Western sanctions on Syria is it places prohibitions on fuel sales. And so Syria always needs a supply of fuel, um, obviously, this helped to fund ISIS's completely murderous and barbaric campaign across Iraq and Syria. As I understand it, they've become the Assad's go-to oil people. They've also been accused of fixing oil deals with Iran, again, against international sanctions. Um, another reason that they've been popular with the regime or they've managed to stay in with the regime is that they've funded pro-regime militias as well. So the Katerjis were operating in the north of Syria. 
Turning to the south, there was a family called the Hamshows who seemed to have cleaned up. What can you tell us about them? The Hamshows kind of predate 2011. So Muhammad Hamshow was well known for his steel businesses, but he's also got a big network of businesses too, including horse breeding. And in a sanctions document, I saw that he also has ice cream businesses. Muhammad Hamshow is believed to be linked to Maher al-Assad, who is Bashar al-Assad's brother, widely considered to be the second most powerful man in Syria. Those accusations have been made in US sanctions filings. The Hamshows did not respond to my request for comment about that. Mohammed Hamshow was sanctioned in 2011 for allegedly providing financial support to the regime. According to sources in Syria, he was one of the main beneficiaries of the destruction of Syrian cities because scrap metal that was looted after the bombings and the destruction found its way to his factories to be melted down. So the story there is that there's kind of a contract or agreement or understanding between Mohammed Hamshow and Mahar al-Assad, who controls a powerful part of the Syrian army called the 4th Armoured Division. And they were one of the brigades that has allegedly carried out the most looting in Syria. And that scrap metal that gets looted, or the steel anyway, goes to Hamshow. Mohammed has a son whose name's Ahmed, who was the first Syrian show jumper to ever get into the Olympics. Some people might remember in 2011, there was a Syrian show jumper in the London Olympics. Well, that was Ahmed Hamshow. And he now seems to be closer to the family business. He was seen at the Damascus Trade Fair recently, alongside his father, welcoming delegations of Gulf businessmen. You mentioned international relationships for some of these businessmen. A lot of them have ended up being sanctioned. And I'm just wondering, have those sanctions had a direct impact on their ability to generate wealth and do business? There's plenty of places you can still do business, basically, where there aren't US or EU sanctions in place, like Russia, for example, Dubai. The United Arab Emirates have housed a lot of Syrian money over the course of this war. Rami Makhlouf's son, Mohammed Makhlouf, claims to be doing business in Russia. You know, it's believed that Rami Makhlouf has also got some business interests in Russia and Belarus, those kinds of places. Certainly, they're Kids seem to spend quite a lot of time in Moscow if their Instagram outputs are anything to go by. They're kind of frequently in Moscow. Ahmed Hamsho is often pictured in Moscow, as is Mohammed Makhlouf and his brother Ali Makhlouf. These are the individuals and the families who've profited from Syria's long conflict. When the country does emerge from war, do we think these are the same people who are going to shape the country's future? No, it's not clear that these people have a long shelf life. If the Assads decide that they don't need them anymore or they've overstepped a line in some way or angered them or done anything really too far out of line, then they can be demoted. I mean, as we saw with Rami Makhlouf, I mean, we always thought that he was the untouchable one and that everyone else lived in fear of Rami Makhlouf. Well, if what we're seeing in terms of his being cut down to size is accurate, then the same goes for all of these guys, for Hamsho, for Fors, and for the Qatarjis. I mean, however useful you are during war, you're never useful enough that you can be allowed to displease the Assads. We have no idea, really, who's going to take a leading role in rebuilding Syria. Maybe it will be some of these people, but equally it might not be. I mean, they just all live on very unstable ground. Thank you, Chloe, and thank you for listening. We've launched a new podcast this month called The Rackman Review, 
a weekly look at geopolitics with the FT's chief foreign affairs commentator, Gideon Rackman. This week's episode looks at Donald Trump, Brexit, and America's shrinking role on the global stage. The show is exclusively for FT subscribers, so if that's you, please go to ft.com forward slash Rackman Review and sign up for a taste of the global political debates that Gideon writes about in his columns. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.